are doing the the seventh commandment, and I'll invite you to turn to a scripture reading that we're having, a couple of scripture readings. The first one will be from Matthew 19. We'll get to that in just a minute. We'll do the catechism question as well. Just going to go ahead and turn to that now. So as we continue this study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we are at the Seventh Commandment, and as we have customarily done, we'll have the the introductory question this evening and talk about um, what, what this commandment entails and then why it is wrong to commit adultery, and then we'll talk about uh, what we should do about it. Question 70 is the question in the Catechism that introduces us to the Seventh Commandment. So we'll begin by confessing the answer to question 70 together. I'll ask the question and then we'll answer in unison. Question 70, which is the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. For our scripture reading then, read first Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about marriage and how it is from the beginning meant to be one man and one woman that uh, remain united for life. So Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse, to verse 12. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case with the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And then our second reading is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first eight verses. First Thessalonians 4 and verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. And there we end a reading of God's word. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. spouse. But as we have seen all along, the Ten Commandments are to be taken more broadly than just the letter of what they expressly state. So all sin that is associated with adultery is also under that sphere of adultery. It should be something that is recognized as prohibited by the Seventh Commandment. So if we look at adultery from that standpoint, we might say that the seventh commandment speaks of all sexual sins. As we consider this, I want to begin by looking at how sexual intimacy is supposed to be used according to God's directive. So God, first, this is our first point, God appointed sexual intimacy exclusively for marriage. What is marriage? Marriage is a a voluntary covenant of companionship that joins a man and a woman together as husband and wife for as long as they both shall live. A covenant is a bond that you make by swearing before God that you will do something. And in the case of marriage, a man swears to be a faithful husband to a woman and a woman swears to be a faithful wife to him. In making that promise before God, you're actually calling God as your witness to witness your promise, and you're asking him to judge you if you don't keep your promise. So it is a very solemn undertaking when you enter into a covenant like that. It's not something to be done lightly. If we do take it lightly, we're taking God's name in vain. When God first instituted marriage with the first man and the first woman, He made it clear at that time that the man and woman were joined together permanently as one flesh. Genesis 2.24 establishes the pattern for all marriages when after Adam and Eve were joined together, he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, we know how to exegete this passage, especially because Jesus does it for us. As we read in in Matthew 19, he insists that this bond of companionship, since it is a bond that God has made, is one that no one should ever break apart. It's not something that they should sever. In Matthew 19, 6, he says, So then, 
They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we're going to be looking at that in more detail later. We're just doing an overview now. But in short, this means that we are guilty of adultery in a broader sense when we do anything that contributes to the breaking up of marriage. Anything from producing a movie that disparages marriage in general to doing something like encouraging your friend to neglect his or her relationship, maybe in a selfish way because you want them to spend time with you or something, or to take revenge on his spouse instead of, um, instead of responding in a biblical way to those that have done wrong, anything like that that you're doing that would break apart, then that's a, that's a, you're, you're committing adultery that way. In other words, you could not even do anything sexual yourself and violate this commandment if you're attacking marriage or someone else's marriage. So you see the commandment reaches very far. This permanent bond is referred to as a covenant of companionship in Scripture. I want you to consider two passages related to this. First, Proverbs 2, 16 through 17. This passage speaks of an immoral woman who flatters with her words and forgets or forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. By leaving her husband, she forgets the covenant promises that she made before God when she married him. The man that she married is the one she promised to be a companion to, not to some other man that she takes up with. Second, Malachi 2, 12-14. This time we have an example where the husband is charged with breaking up the marriage. The husband is charged with that. The other one you see, it's the woman. Here it's the man. Uh, and the wife is the one that is referred to as his companion by covenant. Malachi 2.14 says, The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the subject here is divorce, and you see that the man is accused of dealing treacherously because he has broken the vows and promises that he made to his wife of covenant companionship. He's, not, he's severed that, that companionship. You see clearly here that marriage is a covenant of companionship then between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, that is not meant to be severed. You promise to be a companion for life. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Think about that, a companion for life. That's one of the things that really drew me to want to get married is I realized that in my relationships, there were none other than that were permanent or committed for life. They were all ones that you could kind of take up with for a while. Maybe I had a good friend and then we go our separate ways and that was, it was all over. And just the desire to have that, that permanent kind of relationship that God has appointed for us in that way. Someone to love you and cherish you and be there for you all your life and you for them. Marriage was established by God, actually, as foundational to all other relationships in society. It's here that the dearest and nearest of all human relationships is to be found. It is here in marriage that mutual love, service, responsibility, and commitment 
are to be cultivated as a pattern for all other relationships. You learn it in the home and then you go out from your home into other relationships. It is out of the relationship also that children are to be brought forth and nurtured in joint effort by the man and his wife. It is here that children are to see how human relationships are meant to function. They may not see that much outside and uh, where there is true care and help and love. They are to see that between the man and the woman in their mother and father. Marriage is also designed for happiness. God in his kindness made the man and woman for each other to be suitable as companions to one another to love each other and to serve each other and to labor together in filling and subduing the the earth. Two men can't fill the earth. That is something that requires a man and a woman. Two women can't do that either. But I said before that God appointed sexual intimacy exclusively for marriage. And that brings us to another question. How does sexual intimacy go with marriage? Well, sexual intimacy is, we might say, God's gift for marriage. It sets marriage apart, distinguishes it from all other relationships. It belongs to this relationship alone. It's very special. It's a very delightful gift. Just think how ingenious, how creative, how imaginative God was in coming up with such a thing as sexual relations. It's kind of a, how did he come up with that? How did he come up with anything, even that we should have arms and legs and fingers and eyes and such a thing as hearing and seeing and all all of that? But he came up with this as an aspect of the relationship in which children will be brought forth. Sexual intimacy is meant to be the mark of marriage. It's meant to be reserved for it alone as something that it makes marriage special. And we then attack God's institution when we don't recognize that. Not only does it then distinguish marriage from all other relationships, it's also designed to enhance marriage. It is a physically delightful and pleasant gift that brings pleasure to the man and the woman. It is intended to strengthen the love of the husband and the wife to give them a special way that is not available in any other relationship to express their affection for each other and to cause that affection to grow. It is a way of giving to each other, a way of pleasing each other, of expressing what a husband is to his wife and what, is, what a wife is to her husband in the unique ways of each gender. And not only that, But it is also, of course, the means, as I've mentioned, by which children are conceived. Such a marvelous thing, isn't it? When you're talking about bringing forth an eternal soul that will never perish by this union of a man and his wife. People, interestingly, that are like the man and his wife, like them in particular, especially something very much like the two of them, what, what they're like, a composite of who they are, and yet an altogether unique individual. It was kind of amazing. God designed that. He designed it so that we don't all come out exactly the same like clones or something like that, 
But the two come together, and what comes forth from them, the children that come forth, are a, are a mixture of them. And then you have multiple children, and they're all different. <laughs> and yet there's still a mixture of those two in a unique way with unique characteristics. This is, no other relationship is given to, to, to bring this about. And so as sexual intimacy belongs exclusively to marriage, we need to understand that adultery is a misuse of sexual relations. Adultery takes sexual relations out of marriage, away from marriage. It brings sexual relations into casual relations rather than the covenant relation that it belong, to which it belongs. Or at least it brings it into relationships that are without permanent, the, co- the permanent covenant bond of marriage. As I mentioned before, technically, adultery involves a married person entering into sexual intimacy outside of marriage. But when we think of it in the way I've just described, it's not hard to see that taking what is given by God, that sexual relationship, that is meant by God exclusively for marriage and using it outside of marriage, even if neither person is married, is a misuse of sexual relations and an attack on the institution of marriage. It is to make sexual intimacy, that sexual intimacy that God reserved for marriage common and ordinary. It's to profane it. You know that word profane means that you make something that is set apart in a high and holy place into something that is common. I've used the illustration for this sometimes that you, if you have a, a Persian rug, a very expensive Persian rug, and you don't know what it is. So you take it and put it between the house and the barn to, to wipe your feet off when you come in from the barn. It's a floor mat. Instead, it should be something that's hanging on a wall that's, you know, it's worth a million dollars or something. And, and you use it to wipe your, your dirty feet on. For this reason, it's not just adultery that is forbidden in Scripture, but also it is fornication or sexual immorality. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we read earlier, it says in chapter 4, verse 3 through 5, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, So you need to learn to possess, I think the vessel here should refer particularly to your spouse, to the spouse. And uh, you can listen to the sermon I preached on this if you want more detail about that. But you possess them as, uh, as your own, like we belong to each other in marriage. And it's to be done in a holy and honorable way, not in a passion of lust like the Gentiles, as it said. This has always been a problem with those that don't know God. They realize that sexual relations are very pleasant. So they begin to engage in them without consideration of how God appointed them to be used. Same way that they do with alcohol. It's a gift of God. It's, meant, it's got a proper use to gladden the heart of man. But they use it in ways that are not appropriate and it becomes something that becomes destructive. Something that, that leads them, brings them into drunkenness and, and, and addiction and all kinds of problems that arise from that. They, they use it in a wrong way. What is interesting is that the more common sexual relations become, the less intimate they are and the less significant they are. They lose their special place and become a mere act of physical gratification, nothing more, rather than an expression of love. So then they have to become 
Uh, there has to be some kind of excitement added to it because it's lost its whole purpose. In such a society, this kind of attitude about sex often spills over into marriage as well. And the focus becomes maximum physical sensation instead of an expression of marital love and commitment. Many people have trouble in their marriages because they're looking for this some kind of a, a super sexual experience as their whole focus rather than using it in the way that it's meant to be used as an expression of marital love and commitment. Soon the whole thing becomes a matter of self-gratification instead of an expression of love. A person uses their vessel, their, their spouse, in, in passion of lust, like the Gentiles do, instead of the way God appointed. There is pornography, there is masturbation, there is prostitution, there is the one-night stand, there is sodomy, and all sorts of unnatural, perverse practices that arise. Anything for the experience. The good gift of God is taken and profaned. Its whole use is distorted. Now we must ask a question. At what point in sexual relations is fornication or sexual immorality committed? We live in a day when sexual immorality is so widespread that Christians often want to engage in it and say that they didn't because they didn't go as far as others. Oh, we didn't, we didn't go as far. Young couples will engage in sexual intimacy and say that it was okay because they didn't go all the way. So we need to ask the question that really should not need to be asked. When does an unmarried couple cross the line? Sexual immorality is committed when nakedness is uncovered in a sexual way outside of marriage. Now I say in a sexual way because you can uncover nakedness like for a physical examination at the doctor and then it's not adultery, it's not fornication but to uncover nakedness in a sexual way outside of marriage. So uncovering nakedness is the literal translation of an Old Testament expression used over and over in Leviticus chapter 18. Sometimes it's paraphrased in certain versions as have sexual relations with. It is that, but that muddies it. You see, this, this passage lists off those that you are not to have sexual relations with, like your aunt and uncle or your sister, but it says that you're not even to uncover their nakedness. So that's saying more than not, you, you, can, you can define, have sexual relations with in certain ways, uncover nakedness goes further. And the literal translation is very helpful because it gives us a very good working definition of when we have gone too far. What does it mean then when it says uncover nakedness? Well, it means that you are neither to touch another person sexually nor to look upon them sexually because to do so is to uncover their nakedness. There is no room for fudging here. In Matthew 5.28, Jesus goes so far as to tell us that even simply to look upon someone to lust for them, what we might call mentally uncovering their nakedness, is to commit adultery in your heart. 
He says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see that no one can pretend to be innocent because they did not go all the way into full sexual intimacy. When you uncover nakedness, you take God's gift of sex and you use it in a way that God does not intend. You pervert his ordinance of marriage. You need to see, this is our third point, that adultery and fornication are wrong. God strictly forbids these sins. We should know that they are wrong simply from the fact that when God instituted marriage in the beginning, he ordained that man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and that the two would become one flesh. When God set apart the marriage relationship at creation, Adam and Eve knew right well that it was wrong to carry that intimacy that God had given them in marriage into other relationships. It was exclusive. God did not have to tell them. He did not have to issue the seventh commandment at that time and say, now you shall not commit adultery. They already knew that. God had appointed this for their one flesh relationship. As we've seen, if we had never fallen into sin, I've shown you this as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments would never have been needed at all. Since God instituted the Sabbath, then of course you're supposed to keep it holy. Would God set apart a day as holy and put a special blessing in it? And then we say, oh, well, I'm not going to observe the day. No, God set it apart. Of course you do. Of course you remember the Sabbath day. God sets apart sexual relations for marriage. And then we say, oh, well, but I want to use them somewhere else. Well, no, God has instituted this as our creator. Everybody, everyone already knew that adultery was wrong before the Ten Commandments were issued on Mount Sinai. It wasn't just Israel that knew that. The nations of the world knew that. They knew it from the beginning. For example, in Genesis 20, that was hundreds of years before the commandments were given, the Ten Commandments, we have the account of Abraham and Abimelech, the king of Gerar. Abimelech, supposing that Sarah was Abraham's sister because Abraham lied and said she was his sister, well, she was his half-sister, he started to take her into his harem. The Lord visited him in a dream and said, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. As soon as Abimelech heard this, he immediately declared that he did not know that she was married. He didn't say, well, well, what would be wrong with taking another man's wife? Never heard that was wrong before. I haven't heard, you, you haven't issued the seventh commandment yet. How would I know that? He, he knew it. Everyone knew it. The point here is that long before the, the commandments were given, he knew it'd be wrong to take a woman that was married to another man. Everybody knows that. They just deny it. Now, I could give you other examples as well from Genesis, quite a few, where we see that the people of the ancient world knew that adultery was wrong. Let me mention as well that those who have not been exposed to God's revelation in our day also know that it's wrong. Groups of people that don't have the word of God, I mean special revelation from God. In every society, in every part of the world, there is marriage and there are penalties for adultery. Like when you go and you find a group of people that have been isolated for years and years on an island somewhere and they've got all kinds of crazy pagan customs maybe and things like that. It can be terribly perverted, but they have something like marriage. And they have penalties when 
you take another man's wife. There's punishment and penalties for adultery. That's because it goes all the way back to the beginning when God instituted it. But of course, we who have God's written word have less excuse than anyone for ignorance about these things. We have the seventh commandment that God gave to his people that states plainly, you shall not commit adultery. And there are many other passages in the Old Testament where adultery and fornication are prohibited. And God's servants who commit adultery, as David did, are sharply rebuked and must come to the Lord in repentance looking for forgiveness. And, you know, what I was talking about before with um, uncovering nakedness, that, you see, doesn't even need to be in Leviticus. That's something that, again, we should know simply because it's instituted by God that the man and the woman become one flesh, that there's a special relationship here. And so then if we're carrying something of that in other places, then we should know that it is wrong. Some people think, of course, that when we come to the New Testament, that things are lightened up. That uh, it's actually just the opposite, though. I've already mentioned how the Lord Jesus tells us that even looking after a woman to lust after her is adultery. It always was, but Jesus makes it, states it expressly. Matthew 15, 19 through 20, he also tells us that adultery and fornication are sins which come out of our hearts and defile us. Matthew fifteen nineteen says, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, it goes on. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The Apostle Paul frequently mentions this sin to his Gentile readers. We've already read in 1 Thessalonians 4 where he says that it's God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality. I remember talking to people when I was in high school about whether, you know, whether, well, is, is it really say it's wrong in the Bible anywhere? Like to, you know, having sexual relations before you get married? People ask that question. It's, it's all through the Bible. Uh, but we couldn't find it. <laughs> and in Galatians 5.19, he lists a number of sexual sins that are called works of the flesh. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. And he goes on to mention other sins. But the works of the flesh, by works of the flesh, he means things that we do because we're fallen creatures in Adam and Eve, fallen beings. Uh, the things of the flesh are what we are that are not from our new birth. The scriptures make it very clear then that this is a sin and that it is a sin that God judges. And that's the next thing I want to look at. We've seen that it's clearly forbidden but it's also a sin that God judges. In Matthew 13, 4, it simply says, Marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So you see that sexual immorality, or sexual intimacy, sorry, in marriage is a good and honorable thing, but that God will judge those who defile the bed by fornication and adultery.
families to, to nurture them and to love them and to bring them up as God designed. And such harm to our well-being when we destroy the very social foundation of marriage upon which society is built. So that people don't learn to cultivate what they must cultivate if they're going to live together with one person and care for them and work out issues and all of those things. They don't learn that in a society where this is cast off. Such perversion where we possess our spouses in the passion of lust or whoever we are with. And secondly, okay, so, so first of all, God punishes this sin. He's appointed it to be punished by authorities, by civil magistrate who he's authorized to, to punish this sin. And secondly, that God visits this sin with judgment in this life from his hand. In Ephesians 5, 6, we're told that his wrath comes upon those who commit this sin. Interestingly, it comes now, doesn't it? It's, it's unique. Sexual punishment is unique in that it's very much in this life. I mean, it's in the life to come too, but we can see that he especially visits it with what we call sexually transmitted diseases. Diseases which are spread almost exclusively by sexual intimacy outside of marriage. But God's punishing this sin in this life, whether by the civil magistrate obeying his command or by sexually transmitted diseases, is in fact a great mercy to keep before us the wickedness of this sin so that we might repent before it's too late. Our society gradually gets destroyed when we don't, when we don't deal with this and we get hardened and everything eventually falls apart. The Lord assures us in his word that if we do not repent of this sin, then we will go to hell for it. We want to deny that this is so. We want to say, oh no, no, it couldn't be. Like you could be a Christian and still live in this kind of sin. You know, you could, you could have somebody that you're shocking up with or whatever. And, you know, you're a Christian, you know, God won't, God won't make a big deal about that. But uh, listen to what Paul says. We want to deny it. Paul says that you can't deny it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Because people are deceived about this. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, he goes on to say, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you come to Christ, you are delivered from these sins. You may have been deeply engaged in these sins. But when you come to Christ, you are delivered from them. Not only are you forgiven by the shed blood of Christ where you've trusted in Christ, but you're also given a new heart and a new life so that you will serve God now. You will not practice these sins without repentance. You may struggle with temptation. You may even fall into these sins, but you will not live in them. That's what Paul is talking about, that you are an adulterer, that you are a fornicator. In other words, you're living in these sins, not that you fell in them and repented. We may fall into any sin, but if we're actually living in it, no, don't deceive yourself. He says, you're not a believer. You don't know the Lord. You're a stranger to Christ and his salvation. So what ought we to do with regard to this sin? Well, the scripture tells you in 1 Corinthians 6.18 what to do. It says, flee sexual immorality. 
It's pretty simple, isn't it? You run away. That's what you do. Don't even toy with it. Proverbs tells you not to go near the door of a seductress. Don't flirt with her. If there is a vicious bear that could destroy you, you don't go and play with it. You run away from it. And sexual immorality is more destructive than a vicious bear. A bear only destroys your body. Fornication will destroy your body and your soul. Be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Do you remember what he did in Genesis 39 as soon as she tried to seduce him? He immediately took a very firm stand. He testified to her right from the get-go that he would not be disloyal to Potiphar, the, her husband that, who had entrusted everything to him. Joseph had a very high position in Potiphar's house that he had been raised to steward in the house. You know, you think, oh, well, he was a slave. Well, look, someone that was a steward in a wealthy man's house, he was in a high position. He was, had all these assets that he had control of. He was, a, he was a, a prosperous man at that point in Egypt. He labeled what she was doing, though, asking him to do, that is, as great wickedness. He said this great wickedness, that's what he called it. He, he didn't mince around with, oh, I don't think that would be quite right. No, he said this would be a great wickedness. And said that it would be a sin against God. And so for him, he made it clear, it's out of the question. Don't leave yourself open. Make it clear to everyone where you stand. And then take your stand and stay there. And as much as you're able, make yourself accountable. Joseph could not do that because he was not around anyone that knew the Lord. But you can. So if you struggle with this sin, ask godly people to help you fight against it. If that bear that I spoke about before is stalking your house, you would call others who are equipped to come and help you, who are able to help you to come and help you. Do the same with fornication and adultery. But don't just flee from sexual immorality. Also, embrace marriage. If you're married already, embracing marriage means that you pour yourself into your marriage for the glory of God, that you cultivate your relationship with your spouse. Pray and ask the Lord to bless it and to make you the kind of spouse that you ought to be. Repent of everything that weakens the relationship. Everything from harsh words to neglecting of your spouse. And start doing things that will strengthen your relationship. Everything from acts of kindness to praying for and with each other. Be sure that you engage in and delight in the intimacy that God has given you for this relationship. Engage in it. By giving yourself to your spouse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it tells us that sexual intimacy in marriage is a remedy to fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Because of sexual immorality, because of that reason, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her and likewise also the wife to her husband. Sometimes we proudly look at this with disdain as if we're superior to that. Well, I don't need to get married for that reason, we would say. But the scripture says that we do need marriage for that reason. Because we're sinful and corrupt. You just look around, you can see that people don't have self-control. And so it's necessary to have whatever remedies that God has provided for us. And if you're not married but have a desire for sexual intimacy, you can say, well, I'm in a tough place. But you see, what it means to embrace marriage then means to pursue it by preparing for it. 
Prepare yourself by equipping yourself to be a husband or wife if you do in God's providence meet someone if he guides you in that way. And that begins by growing in godliness and cultivating those traits that will make you a faithful husband or a faithful wife. Because as I say, these things are supposed to spill over into all of society. So you can live in the way that a person ought to live in, according to God's law. Even if you don't have a home, you can do that outside the home. Learn skills that will make you a blessing to a future spouse. Lay up provision for your future family. And uh, ask the Lord to help you to find a suitable spouse and to seek, for that, to seek for that person in a godly and chaste manner. Not to go about it in a way that is sensual or that will attract the wrong sort of person. But above all here, we're gonna, we'll, we'll say more about that in the future. Again, this is an overview. But above all, maintain a fervent walk with the Lord. I point you again to Joseph. I want you to think about him. Here is a man in his 20s, a healthy, good-looking man that had become very successful in his master's house. Here he is, in a pagan home, in a pagan land that worshipped the sun and other false gods, and he had no contact with other believers, no accountability. And here is his master's wife, probably a beautiful woman, who takes notice of him and begs him day after day, day after day, begs him to lie with her. This is about as powerful a temptation as you could possibly design. What was it that kept Joseph from taking her? He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He had a relationship with God as his savior that he did not want to jeopardize in order to have pleasure with a seductress. He knew that if he took her, he would be trading in his conscience, trading in his relationship with the Lord, no longer walking with God as his God and as his gracious Redeemer, but now walking contrary to him, breaking, severing that relationship with God. He knew that that would be a terrible exchange. So the natural thing that comes out of his mouth is how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what's on his thought, not, well, what will somebody say over there? What will my parents think? What will none of those people are around? It was between Joseph and God. That's what makes the difference. My dear brothers and sisters, do you have a relationship with the Lord like that? A relationship that keeps you from this sin? Do you love the Lord your God? Do you trust with delight in his sure promises that he has made with you by covenant? That he will be God to you and that you are his child through Jesus Christ? Does that mean great things to you? That he has forgiven your sins through the blood of the covenant that Jesus shed on the cross? Is that important to you? That he has grace for you to strengthen you and to help you? Do you believe that? That if you call on him in Jesus name, he will hear you and answer you that he has plans for you, plans for this life and plans for that which is to come plans to walk with you, that he has plans for him to walk with you and to bless you in his grace. Are you craving that blessing or is something else more important to you? And do you maintain this relationship? 
by seeking him daily, by keeping his commandments and repenting when you do not keep them, by renewing your trust in his promises, refreshing yourself in them, by continuing his word so that you're hearing from him regularly and not just sporadically, by thanking him for all that he is to you, by asking him daily to keep you from temptation, and in particular, for when those temptations are pressing on you and are very strong, that you're sensitive to that and you take action. If you're doing these things, you have a relationship with God that you will not want to set aside to inordinately gratify your sexual passions. And if you don't have such a relationship with God, very simply, you need to repent and establish such a relationship. You see, it's not by works that you establish such a relationship. It's by coming to God and casting yourself on him for his saving mercy. Whether you're sinning by fornicating or not, you're missing the most important thing of all if you don't have such a relationship with God. If you're not in the Lord now, what makes you think that he will accept you on the day of judgment? You will be among those to whom he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Oh, come to him and live. Come to him with your sin and your filth, and he will save you. He can save you from from all of your sins. Jesus Christ came that we might have life. Not life in alienation from God, life in separation from God, in distance from God, but life in warm fellowship with God, such that we would say, when brought to temptation, how could I do this sin against God? the God who has redeemed me and loved me and saved me from my sins. Please stand and let's call on his name. Our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the wisdom that you have exhibited as creator. Father, we marvel when we think about all the things that you have made. We marvel when, you, when we think of how you have made us, male and female, people that are similar to each other, correspond to each other, and yet are different from each other. We thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom that you designed it this way and appointed that one man and one woman should come apart and enter into holy matrimony, that they should become one flesh until one of them dies. And we thank you and praise you, Lord, that this is your institution and that it is a good thing. We pray that we would not then desire to, to transgress and to, to carry this relationship into places where it is not fitting, where it is not designed by our Creator, where it does not belong. We pray that we would recognize that to do so is to rebel against you. It is to set ourselves at odds with you. We know that this is the sin that often appears when one is departing from God that it's a sin that is often one of the first ones to, to engage in. That and uh, violations of, of worship and, and turning from the appointed worship that you have given to your people, turning cold to that and indifferent to it or, or modifying it. Father, we see that, that, that this is a mark of, of a direction toward apostasy. We pray, Lord, that we would then learn how to have to practice self-control not because we are 
so tough and so resolute and so resilient because we're not, but because we cherish our walk with you because we've cultivated a walk with you and that walk is more important to us than gratifying our own sinful passions. Father, we ask you cultivate such relationships with us, with you as our Lord and Redeemer and help us to encourage others to walk in such relationship. May we see, Lord, when that we are pulled strongly by temptations that it is because that relationship with you is not in its proper place, that it is waning. Perhaps we have gone asleep as we saw today. We think about David when he went to sleep, when he was king, and then he ended up committing adultery with his neighbor's wife. Oh, Father, guard us, we pray, that we might be pure and holy because we love you, because we walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.